0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Single-Minded Servants. Amen. Well, for the last few months, we've been making our way through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, and as we've been making our way through this letter, it's been very obvious that the Apostle Paul was a single-minded servant. And I want to define our, t- our terms right away here in case you were wondering, what, what does that mean? Well, single-minded simply means having one driving purpose or resolve. And so when you read the New Testament, when you read 1 Corinthians, for example, it's so obvious that the Apostle Paul had one driving purpose. He had one resolve, and that was... To serve our Lord Jesus Christ, to live for our Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're talking about the three grueling missionary journeys that he went on, whether you're talking about all those people, men and women, teenagers, boys and girls that he won to Christ, whether you're talking about all the churches that he planted, right, all over the, the Roman Empire, or the fact that he Uh, by the moving of the Holy Spirit, wrote most of your New Testament. The fact remains, there's no one that can doubt this, Paul was singly devoted to Christ. And so it's amazing to me when I think about this, that he was singly devoted to Christ in the face of great problems and difficulties. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to what Paul says about his life that he lived for the Lord. He said, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five times they opened up his back with a flagellum. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys, often. Perils, Often, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the cities, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren. You guys think that Paul had a perilous life, right? Persecution, difficulty, hard times. He says, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And so, man, doesn't that put our lives into perspective? Here you have a guy in the first century that was so so sold out for Jesus Christ, and he endured so much hardship. And I want you and and, and me to think back um, just in the last two weeks and that difficult thing that we went through. Compare that to the life of the Apostle Paul. It puts it all into perspective. And Paul's devotion shouldn't surprise us because he told us what his life's motto was. You remember this in Philippians 1:21? Let's all say this on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's the motto for the life of the Apostle Paul. And I just wonder, don't answer out loud. Is that your motto? I mean, if you could write down, if here's a homework assignment for you, and no, you don't have to turn it in next week, but go home this week and write down what is your life all about in one sentence. What is the motto of your life? What is your life all about? Write it down in one sentence. Now, if you really want an honest answer, because how many of you guys know most of us are just blind to the faults and failings in our own lives. I'm so glad one person said amen. Do you guys understand that we're blind to a lot of our faults and failures and shortcomings, right? Yes. And so if you really want an honest answer, take your sentence, your motto, and go to your spouse and say, is this true? Go to a close friend. And say, is this true? In fact, let your spouse or your close friend write down the one sentence that would define who you are, what your life's motto really is. You see, because for some Christians, if they were honest, they would have to admit that that's not the motto of their life. If they're really honest before the Lord, they'd have to admit that their life motto is probably more like, for me to live is my position, Right, I work 50, 60, 70 hours a week. I I, I neglect my family, right? I put in all these hours because I want to climb the corporate ladder. I want other people to look up to me and esteem me. For me to live, it's my position. If we were honest, some would have to admit that. Others would say, you know, for me to live are my possessions. It's all about my toys. That's what I live for. I live for my, you know, my fancy car, my boat, um, my jet skis, my golf clubs, my crossbow, my guns, whatever it might be. And by the way, how many of you guys understand that it's not, there's nothing wrong with possessing possessions, but what is wrong is when your possessions possess you, right? And so if that's all you're thinking about living for, that's what you want to do is have fun with your toys, then just admit that. Make that the starting place because... We can't go forward unless we're honest, admit that, and then move towards what's on the screen. Some some Christians, if they were honest, would have to say to me, to live is my pleasure. And so every day I look forward to five o'clock because I can punch out and then I can go do what I want to do. Or I can live for the weekends, right? Sadly, so I can party or drink or maybe hook up with somebody. You say Christians hook up with other people that they're not married to? Hello, yes, all the time. And if you are honest, okay, you can't progress unless you're honest, then just admit that, that's where you are, and repent and ask God to forgive you and then move toward what's on the screen. Right? Some people, if they were honest, would have to say, for me to live, it's my physique. And so I I work out five uh, times a week, two hours every time at the gym, and I spend a whole lot of time just kind of looking at myself in the mirror, you know, (laughs) seeing what's, what's going on here. I remember when I was a teenager, my brother Mark and I used to go to the MacDill Air Force Base gym and work out. And then after our workouts, we would go to the mirror in the men's locker room and we would compare and see whose pecs are bigger or whatever. See, I was honest. I started here so I can progress to what's on the screen. But, 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 but what I'm trying to get over to everybody is this. Be honest with where you're at and then move towards Philippians 1.21, and so, before I move forward so I'm not misunderstood, is there anything wrong with hard work? Yes or no? Is there anything wrong with having some possessions? Yes or no? How about enjoying some downtime in your life? No, nothing wrong with it, right? Is there anything wrong with trying to stay healthy? No. But, but, but here's, here's the problem. When those passions are way up here and your passion for Christ is way down here, then we have a problem. Or when those passions define who you are, that becomes a problem. And so make sure that, man, now that you've received this incredible gift of eternal life, that the way that you say thank you to the Lord is that you move towards Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. As we move through verses 17 through 40 and finish this chapter today, you're going to find that Paul's one goal for the Corinthian believers— was that they would become single-minded servants. And so let's dig in now, starting in verse 17. And you guys know why we are starting in verse 17? Because last week we left off in what verse? Okay, so if you're visiting, that's what we do. We just, 90% of the time we plow through God's word because that's the way God changes our hearts. Verse 17, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in, not just Corinth, but all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? He's talking to Jewish people here. Let him not become uncircumcised. And now to the Gentiles, he says, was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Why, Paul? Verse 19, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Now, I love the way the New Living Translation words verse 17. Please listen. Each of you should remain as you were when God first called you. And so the question that we have to ask, uh, answer is simply, what was my station of life, when God first called me and saved me. And then a really good principle, this is not a law. Okay, don't misunderstand me today. A really good principle is, hey, just be content with your station in life instead of always being discontent and always trying to change your station of life. Now the first example that Paul gives has to do with circumcision. Really big deal in the first century Not as much of a big deal uh, for today, but it still has application to the church today. And so what he says there, and he gives his first example about circumcision, is, hey, if you're circumcised, don't seek to become uncircumcised. If you're uncircumcised, don't seek to be circumcised. What is he talking about? Well, circumcision, the sign that God gave to the nation of Israel, to let the nation of Israel know that they were his covenant people, you know, under the old covenant. And so what you gotta understand is that when the church was born, and by the way, as we seek to rightly divide the word of truth, we at Calvary understand there's a difference between Israel and the church. The church is not, has not replaced Israel. If you believe the church has replaced Israel, you're going to misinterpret a lot of the Bible. Okay? And so different entities. But what you got to understand is that when the church was born on the day of Pentecost, it was 100% Jewish. But then as the gospel went out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, thousands and thousands and thousands of Gentiles, a Gentile, if you're new to the Bible, is someone who's not a Jew, Thousands and thousands of Gentiles came to know God the Father through God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm just wondering, how many Gentiles are here today? Please raise your hand. You see, it worked. Isn't that awesome? 2,000 years later, the gospel continues to spread. And so now the church is Jew and Gentile. If you're with me so far, say amen. Okay, so now writing to the Jews... The Apostle Paul says in verse 18, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Here's what's going on. When some Jews in the first century came to know Jesus Christ as their Messiah, some of them tried to disassociate themselves from Judaism. We don't know why. Maybe it was the fact that a lot of the leaders in Judaism, like Caiaphas, Annas, the Sanhedrin, maybe it was because they rejected Jesus as Messiah. Maybe it was because of of the legalism that's that's seen in the, the, the rabbinic writings. We don't know why. But some Jews, when they came to know Jesus, wanted to disassociate themselves from Judaism. And so they actually had a surgery these circumcised Jewish men actually had a surgery to reverse their circumcision. And you say, how in the world did they do that? And I read all about it this week in my studying of the commentaries, and I don't want to talk about it at church, okay? I don't want to go there. We dealt with all kind of private stuff the last four weeks, and so I'm, I'm done with that for now, all right? And so, but there are historical accounts if you want to go back and read about it, where Jewish men had a surgical procedure to reverse their circumcision. And Paul says in verse 18, don't do that. Why? It'll hurt like crazy, right? No, that's not the reason why. The reason why is in verse 19. Because circumcision is what, church family? Nothing. Nothing. It's over. Uncircumcision, nothing. But keeping the commandments of God, hey, that's What matters? And now, writing to the Gentiles, look at verse 18, halfway down. Paul says, was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Okay, so what's going on here? What's going on here historically is that you had a faction within Judaism of men... Jewish men who believed that Jesus was their Messiah. But they got salvation all screwed up. And they would go into churches and they would teach the Gentile converts to Christ like you guys. Hey, it's great that you guys have accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord. But there's one more thing you need to do before you can go to heaven. Check it out, Acts 15, verse 1. And certain men, Judaizers is what they were called, came down from Judea, and they taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Hey, is that true or false? Absolutely, because how many of you guys believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing, right? You've got to come to grips with that. Because some of you guys are still trying to work your way to heaven. You still think God is mad at you, and you're still trying to do all this effort so that maybe at the end of the day, because no one can know if they're really saved or not, but maybe at the end of the day, God will say, yes, I accept you because you lived a good life. That's a false gospel. The true gospel is that there's nothing you and I could ever do to save ourselves. That's why Jesus became, God became flesh. And went to a cross, and he paid the price that you and I could not pay. He poured out his blood so that now when we come to him, our sins are forgiven by his blood. That's the only way. That's false. The truth of the gospel is by faith alone. And I love the way John puts it in chapter 1. For the law, hey, that was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this is very applicable for everyone here, okay? We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. Now, I have to say one more thing before we move on. If you're new to the Bible, there's two aspects of the law of Moses. There's the ceremonial law, and there's the moral law. We're not under the ceremonial law. How many of you guys brought a lamb or a goat to sacrifice this morning at Calvary? Poor St. Lucie right? Oh boy, that was bad. Someone just made it sound like a goat. But I'm glad you're getting into the message, okay? But, but we don't do that because here's why it's applicable. Some of you guys may be having your devotions right now in Leviticus and you're reading this thinking, am I supposed to be doing this? Okay, no, no. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we don't sacrifice animals, We don't have to keep the Jewish feast days, right? The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Weeks, Yom Kippur. We don't have to keep that stuff. We don't have to take Saturday off, right? Friday at sundown, you don't have to cease working until Saturday at sundown. Now, it's a good principle to have a day off once a week. I love Friday. That's my day off. If I didn't take my day off, I would go berserk. It's a good principle, but it's not a law for Christians today. We don't have to keep a strict kosher diet. We don't have to be circumcised. Now, many Gentile parents still circumcise their infant sons, but it's not for religious reasons, right? It's for hygiene reasons or maybe some other kind of reason. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, so what really matters. Look at verse 19. At the end of the verse, keeping the commandments is what matters. And some of you who know the Bible, you're thinking right now, but Pastor Mike, time out. Circumcision is a commandment. I I read it. Genesis chapter 17. God said, take your your male son on the eighth day, cut away the foreskin of his flesh. And that's the sign of the covenant that I have between you and me. Okay, Who, you got to, context, context, context. Who is God writing to? The Jews. Circumcision was a sign for the nation of Israel, but their covenant between them and the Lord. There's a difference between Israel and the church. And so when he says what really matters is the keeping of God's command, he's not talking about the ceremonial law. What is he talking about? The moral law. You remember the big 10? Don't have any other gods before me, says Yahweh. Right? Um, don't make any graven images and bow down before them. Don't take the, God's name in vain. Okay, keep holy the Sabbath. I'm going to come back to that one. Um, five, honor your mother and father. Six, don't murder. Seven, don't commit adultery. Eight, don't steal. Nine, don't lie. Ten, don't covet. That's God's moral law and you better believe it that in this age this dispensation of grace in the church age we are absolutely under God's moral law that's how we honor the Lord with our lives And so don't say, Pastor Mike, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, and so it's okay for me to have sex with my boyfriend or girlfriend before we're married or commit adultery on my spouse. It's not going to fly because we're not under the ceremonial law, true, but we're absolutely under the moral law. Do you want to honor God with your life or not? Do you want to revere him and respect him and live a life that puts a smile on his face? Okay, so commandment number four, keep holy the Sabbath. It's a ceremonial law. You know how you know? Because all the laws that are the moral law of God were repeated in the New Testament. Keep holy the Sabbath day was not repeated in the New Testament. Why? Because the Sabbath was for Israel. Okay, so we we rightly divide the word of truth. We understand, listen to this, most important thing that I've said so far. We don't Keep God's moral law to be saved. We keep God's moral law because we're saved. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And we just want to honor the Lord with our lives. If, you're, if, it's, if it's making sense to you, say amen here. All right. So we're going to move on to verse 20 now. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Hey, don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become the slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the station of life in which he was called. Paul's in this portion of his letter, talking about slavery. Don't misunderstand him. He's not approving slavery. You say, but he didn't speak out against slavery here. Can I ask you a question? Who's inspiring the Apostle Paul while he's writing this letter or dictating it? The Holy Spirit. Is slavery evil? Yes. Did Paul know slavery was evil? Yes. But God didn't call him to speak out against slavery right here. God called him to preach the gospel right here. God called him to help people grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ right here. And so he's just writing in the context of his day. In the context of his day, there were six million slaves in the Roman Empire. And so as the gospel spread, a lot of those slaves became Christians. And what the Apostle Paul says is, hey, in verse 21, were you called while a slave? Don't be concerned about it. Okay, don't let that worry you. Don't let that get you down. But I love what he says at the end of verse 21. Hey, if you can be made free, go for it, right? In that day, if you could accumulate enough money, you could purchase your freedom. And so he's saying, if you can be free, I understand slavery is terrible. It's evil. It's evil. So if you can be made free and you can accumulate the money, great. But don't let your slavery make you angry and bitter at the world. Don't make your slavery make you angry and bitter at your master. No, realize that in Christ, even though you're a slave, hey, you are free. Look at verse 25. Now concerning virgins. So unmarried, inference there, unmarried young people. And by the way, don't. I love the fact that Paul assumed that unmarried young people are virgins. Just a side note, I'm not gonna preach on it. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose therefore that this is good because of the, and I want you to underline, present distress Because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Don't seek a wife. Okay, to understand how in the world to interpret this section, you got to understand that everything Paul just said is contingent upon the two words present distress. What does that mean? It means a serious difficulty that the believers in Corinth were experiencing. Okay, so this is localized to the area of modern-day southern Greece in the first century. Most of the people that I read this week said this was a local, they believe it was a local persecution against followers of Jesus Christ. So this present distress, in light of the fact that believers are being persecuted there in that region of the world, Paul gives the advice that he gives. And we know that right before Paul penned this letter, Nero became the emperor of Rome. Remember him? Impaling Christians, the corpses of Christians, covering them with pitch, lighting them on fire to light his garden and screaming as he rode on his horse naked, pointing at the Christian corpses, you're the light of the world. This guy was filled with demons And yet he was the head honcho in the Roman Empire. And we know that in just about 10 years from when Paul wrote this letter, Rome is going to burn down. Do you remember who Nero blamed the burning of Rome on? Christians. Because... Rome, there was a growing community of of Christians in Rome. Nero hated them, so he conveniently blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians, and that set off a Roman empire, whole region of intense persecution against the followers of Jesus Christ. Perhaps Paul foresaw all of that, and that's why he said, look at verse 27, hey man, if you're bound to a wife, don't Seek to be loosed. In other words, if you're married, don't leave your wife and kids. Not now. They need you more than ever, guys. They need you to stick by them. They need you to protect them. And then he says at the end of verse 27 to singles, are you loosed from a wife? Don't seek a wife, right? Because of this present distress, if you're single, don't worry right now, Paul's saying, He's giving advice. Don't worry right now about getting married. Here's why. If you're single and the Roman Empire comes knocking on your door and they say, I want you right now before this group of soldiers out on your front lawn to say, Caesar is Lord. Pinch the salt, do the whole ceremony. And I want you to denounce that Jesus is Lord. By the way, that happened over and over and over again in the first century. Hey, if you're single, you can say, and be kind, but you can say something like, hey, you know what? You can do to me whatever you want. You can torture me. You can kill me. I will not renounce the name of my Lord Jesus Christ who died for me, right? But if you're married and they come knocking on your door and they say, if you don't renounce Jesus as Lord and proclaim Caesar as Lord, then we're going to rape your wife, torture your kids and kill your whole family in the Roman arena. Now, it's a pretty tough decision, right? Still, they're going to do what's right, hopefully. But it makes it marriage and family makes it in this present distress, the reason why Paul advises everybody please say advise it's not a command. He advises for them to stay single. If that's making sense to you guys, just say amen. Amen. Okay, so we'll move on. Verse 28. So in the same context, but even if you do marry, if you make that decision, that's between you and the Lord, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Now it's true that if two single people, right? A guy and a girl decide they're going to get married, they're going to have Trouble in the flesh adjusting to marriage. Can I get an amen from all you married people, right? Two different people, two different backgrounds, two different ways of thinking, and now all of a sudden you're sharing the same bed, living in the same house. You're gonna have trouble in the flesh. That's true, but that's not what he's talking about in the context. In the flow of the context, he's saying because of this present distress, The persecution against the followers of Jesus Christ. Hey, single person, if you want to get married, that's between you and the Lord. You haven't sinned, but just know you're going to have trouble in the flesh. There's going to be persecution coming down the pike. And Paul says, I would spare you. Look at verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. And and that Just so you guys know, as I was studying this week, is what jumped, literally jumped off the page at me, and that's why we're going to end the sermon the way we're going to end it later. The time is short. How many of you guys believe the time is short, right? So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none, and I don't like particularly the New King James rendering of that. I prefer the New Living Translation. Let me read it to you. Those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. That's the idea there in the context. That's the intent of the author in the original manuscripts. Those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Verse 30, those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy... As though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. And I want everybody uh, to please help me finish the rest of verse 31. Go ahead. For the form of this world is passing away. All right. So the time is short, the Apostle Paul says. And I know because some of you are, are thinkers. And that's good that you're a thinker. We don't check our brains when we come to church, right? Right? All right, so the fact that you're thinking right now, you're probably thinking, Pastor Mike, the Apostle Paul wrote, the time is short 2,000 years ago. Jesus hasn't come back. Is the time really that short? And I want you to understand at least two things. First of all, don't forget 2 Peter 3.8. Listen to this. Beloved, do not forget this one thing. And with the Lord... One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So it's been 2,000 years since the Apostle Paul wrote, The time is short. But for God, it's been two days. So remember that. But I also want you to remember this that God has always wanted you and I, and every generation, believers like you and I, God has always wanted us to live like He could come back in our lifetime. That's the will of the Lord. That's your next point. If you're taking notes, the Lord wants each generation to live with the expectancy that he could absolutely come at any time. The way I know that is because when the disciples came to Jesus, the resurrected Jesus in Acts chapter one, you know, right before Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, you remember what they said to Jesus? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And by the way, they didn't say, are you going to go up in heaven and rule from heaven now? And a thousand years is just allegorical because you're going to be ruling at the right hand of the Father. That's that's not the way they believed. That's not the way we should believe. They said, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? How many of you guys know when Jesus comes back, he's gonna restore the kingdom to Israel and he's gonna reign for a literal thousand years? Absolutely. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And the Lord says, hey, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put under his own authority. Okay, so here's my point. The disciples thought the kingdom was coming in their lifetime, And the Lord let him continue to think that. The Apostle Paul, writing about the rapture, he says, behold, I I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. Listen, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo in the Greek, rapturo in the Latin Vulgate, rapture is in the Bible. Don't let anybody tell you the rapture is not in the Bible. It's there. We, Paul says, who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. He said we. Why? Because Paul thought that Jesus was coming in his lifetime, and the Lord let him continue to think that. Do you know why the Lord wants each generation to live with the expectancy that he could come soon? Here's why. Because if you really believe that you could be raptured by the time you put your head to your pillow tonight, it'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you think. It'll change what you choose to say. It'll change the fact that you want to let your heart be bitter and angry at that loved one or that friend who did something bad to you this past week or two weeks. It'll change the way you behave. It'll change the choices you make if you really believe. But you know what's going on right now in America? You know what's going on because pastors aren't teaching God's word? The church is ignorant about the end times. The church is ignorant that the rapture could happen at any moment. The church is sleeping in a fog and we're gonna be caught not ready when the Lord comes. No wonder Jesus said, will I even find faith on the earth when I come back? But I want Calvary to be different. I want us to understand the Lord could come at any moment and I want us to let that change the way that we live and the way that we treat one another because he really could come back soon. He really could. And so, look at verse 32. But I want you to be without care. I don't want you to be worried. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who's married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Okay, you get the idea that Paul is promoting singleness here. You know why? He's a bachelor. He got a lot done for the Lord. He says in verse 34, there is a difference between a wife and a virgin or an unmarried person. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, okay? He's promoting singleness, but you gotta understand it's advice, it's not a command. You say, how do you know that, Pastor Mike? Look at the rest of verse 35. Not that I may put a, what? A leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distractions, Paul is simply saying, if you're single, you don't have all the family responsibilities, and that can be an advantage in serving the Lord. Paul knew he could send out guys like Timothy and Titus, single guys, all over the Roman Empire, but he couldn't do that with Aquila. Why? Aquila was a married man. But you've got to understand this. He says, I'm not going to put a leash on you. He's an apostle, and he's not making a command for the church that... You guys all need to remain single. That's not what he's doing. I'm not going to put a leash on you. So isn't it unfortunate that in 1075 AD, the Roman Catholic Church made it mandatory that all priests have to live a life of singleness and celibacy. What have they done? They put a leash. They did exactly opposite of what Paul says. They put a leash on their clergy. And you say, Pastor Mike, you shouldn't speak out against... The Roman Catholic Church, listen, no matter what church it might be, I'm just going to stick with the scriptures, right? And, And by the way, I believe there's thousands and thousands of Roman Catholics that would totally agree with me, that want their priests to be married, okay? And so this is not a command. It's absolutely just some good advice, especially in the context of the present distress that the Corinthians were going through, now, you got to understand verses 36 through 38, um, it's, it's some of the most difficult, misinterpreted verses in the entire Bible. So we're going to plow through this, and I'm going to try my best to rightly divide the word of truth here. Verse 36, but if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let them do what he wishes, let him do what he wishes, he does not sin, let them marry. Okay, for 20 years or more, I always interpreted that as if a single man is engaged, and he's behaving improperly towards his fiance, you know, with sexual temptation, then get married. And I was wrong. Because when you dig deeper, here's what you find out. In verse 36, the man, he's talking about the father, Fathers in that culture had a lot more weight than fathers have today. And so if any father thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin daughter, you see, here's what you got to understand. Some dads back then really wanted their virgin daughters to remain single and live a celibate life and devote themselves fully to the Lord. How many of you guys know when dads make that decision, there's going to be daughters that protest vehemently? But dad, I want to get married. Dad, I want to to have kids. Right? And so look at verse 36 again. If any father thinks he is behaving improperly because of all the arguments between the father and daughter, because she wants to get married. So if he's behaving improperly towards his virgin daughter, if she is past the flower of youth, she's old enough to get married, and thus it must be, because she won't be quiet about it, let the father do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. On the other hand, verse 37, nevertheless, the father who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, right, I believe The reason he has no necessities is because his virgin daughter is fine about remaining single. But he has power over his own will and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin daughter. Hey, he does well too. Either way, Paul says, It's, it's, it's okay. Just do what God wants you to do. And in verse 38, here's why I know he's talking about fathers and not about young men who are engaged. Verse 38, so then he who gives her in Marriage, that's what dads do. That's what I had the privilege of doing last month, giving my daughter away in marriage. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does what? You know why? Paul's promoting singleness. You know why? He's a bachelor. Verse 39. A wife. Okay, so now now we're getting into the actual law. Before it was advice, now here's the law. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. So ladies, don't divorce your husband. That's God's law. God says in Malachi, I hate divorce. But we're having these horrible, horrible problems. Listen, go get counseling. Do whatever you can. Do whatever you can To to, to obey the Lord. And by the way, there's two biblical exceptions, and you can go back and listen to the podcast from last week. And so, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only make sure the guy's a Christian. He loves the Lord. Verse 40 but she is happier if she remains as she is, single, because Paul's promoting singleness because he's a bachelor according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. Now, very interesting, but I want, in closing, and you guys stay with me here to the end because here's a special treat about the end times. I want you to go back to verse 31, and I want you to look at the second half of verse 31. Paul says, for the form of this world is passing away. The world as we know it, It's passing away. And ladies and gentlemen, when you read the newspaper or click on the news on the internet and you read the current events, it's very obvious, unless you're totally in a fog, it's very obvious we're in the last days. I will never set dates. Why? Because Jesus says no man knows the day or the hour. So anybody who sets dates, you got their book at home, file 13, that, 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 that thing. Okay, no dates. But we're, we're, we're in the last days. The stage is set for the second coming of Christ. And I could, I could go on and on and on and on for another two hours. I won't. I'm just going to give you three ways that we can know that biblically, that the, the stage is set. Here's the first thing. The rebirth of Israel as a nation. Now, some of you guys you're not up on the history of Israel. So you think that the Jews have been living over there in the promised land forever, they haven't. In AD 70, when Titus the Roman general came and he sacked Jerusalem and he burnt down the temple, the Jews were scattered all over the world. But did you know in AD 135, after the Bar Kokhba revolt, even more Jews were kicked out of their land. And they were dispersed all over the world. And for 18 or so hundred years, the Jews were out of their land. But guess what? As of May 14th, 1948, they're back. They're in the land. They're in the land. This should make us exciting. You know why? Because God said it would happen. Check it out in Ezekiel. He says, for I will take you the Jewish people from among the nations and I'll gather you out of all countries and I'll bring you into your land. That is not talking about the regathering of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. That is talking about a future event. How many of you guys, let me see your hands, were alive in 1948. Please raise your hand right now. You saw that verse come alive in your time. God said he would do it and he did it. Why? Because... Jesus could not come back until the Jews were back in their land. Jesus could not go, come back until the Jews got regained possession of Jerusalem in 1967. But, and by the way, never in history has any country been kicked out of their land and then come back. One country only, Israel. Why? They're God's chosen people. And he loves them. The fact that, that Benjamin Netanyahu could stand at a podium at the Holocaust, um, uh, the Auschwitz Memorial, and, and address that crowd in Hebrew, that is an absolute miracle. Because the other countries that were around in the Old Testament times, most of those countries, if not all, they're gone. They're gone, but the Jews remain. Why? Because they're God's chosen people, and now they're back in the land. And so we need to look at Israel and wake up, church, because Jesus is coming soon. But not only that, look at number two. A military alliance between Russia and Iran? Have you seen this? Have you read Ezekiel 38 and 39? You see, when you read Ezekiel 36 and 37, you see um, that the dry bones have come back together. I love what Pastor Dave said earlier. That's because the Jews are back in their land, but they're dry bones. You know why they're dry? Because they don't believe Jesus is their Messiah. But one day when Jesus comes back, He will breathe spiritual life into the nation of Israel. And as Paul said in Romans chapter 9, all Israel will be saved. Okay? And not only that, but you have now this military alliance between Russia and Iran. Interesting. Ezekiel 36 and 37, the Jews are coming back to their land. Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's an end times invasion from Russia, Magog, Scholars believe that's the area of Russia and Persia. Anybody in the house know who Persia is? Iran. Iran. And they're going to join with other nations and they're going to attack Israel from the north, south, east, and west. It's right there in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It hasn't happened yet. What does that mean? That means that right now we're somewhere in between Ezekiel 37 and 38. Do you know what Ezekiel 40 through the rest of the book is all about? The millennial kingdom and the new temple and the reign of the son of David on the earth. We're getting closer. Okay. And so isn't it interesting Magog, Persia, getting together with um, the area of Turkey and Sudan and other nations. And they're attacking Israel in the last days. It's so interesting, amazing that the Bible would say Persia. You know Why? Because it's just in the last 40 years or so that the relationship between Iran and Israel has so greatly diminished. Did you know that in the early and mid-70s, Iran and Israel were friends? They were allies under the Shah. Pastor Chuck Smith, our founding pastor who's with the Lord right now, was in Israel in the mid-70s. He talked to the Israeli generals He said to them, gentlemen, the country that you have to be worried about is Iran. You know what the generals did? They laughed. You know why? Because Iran was such good friends with Israel. But sure enough, a few years later, 1978, 1979, the Islamic Revolution in Iran, the Shahs kicked out, the Ayatollah Khomeini comes in, and now what do you have? You have the nation of Iran that hates Israel and wants to wipe them off the face of the map. The Bible is coming alive as we're living today. And if you stick your head in the sand and you make your possessions what defines your life or your position what defines your life or your pleasures what defines your life or your physique what defines your life, then you're going to be so sad when all of a sudden you're snatched up. Could be very soon. And you're standing before the Lord and you have to admit to him that you live for yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, my heart cries out that you would understand the Lord's coming soon. What's another third, final reason? The dawn of our nuclear age. I mean, just recently, nuclear weapons have been developed. 40s, 70 or so years. When you read Zechariah, Ezekiel, Revelation, it's not if nuclear war is going to happen, it's when nuclear war it's going to happen. And so imagine that this stage had a curtain. And so all the players, all the actors, are, 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 they're on their marks. We have marks up here all over the place where people can stand. So the, the actors are in place. All we're waiting for is the curtain to go up. And for the church that's different from Israel, that means the harpazo, the rapture. Because God has not appointed us under wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Here's your last verse. Likewise, Jesus said, as it was also in the days of Lot. Interesting, isn't it? The days of Lot? You guys know what was going on in the days of Lot? They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built, right? Just life as usual. And by the way, that's how some of you are living right now. Life as usual, your head is in the sand, you're in a fog, you're living for yourself. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, because God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. When Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, Jesus said, will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed? Are you ready for His coming? One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.